Your attention, please. The Thunder Mesa Limited, now leaving for a grand circle tour through the realms of Imagineering, Model Railroading, and Disney Trains. All passengers, board! Howdy folks, welcome aboard the Thunder Mesa Limited. I'm your host Dave Meek coming to you from Thunder Mesa Studio in historic Jerome, Arizona. This is the show where we talk to all kinds of creative folks from the worlds of imagineering, modeling, trains, and most of all, Disney trains. You're listening to Season 1, Episode 7, and our guest today is former Disney Imagineer Jim Shaw. Jim was with Walt Disney Imagineering for more than 30 years where he had a hand in creating mini-attractions and themed environments from Mickey's Toontown to Yora Disney to Toy Story Land and Shanghai Disneyland. We'll be talking with Jim about all of that and so much more right after this important word from our sponsor. This episode brought to you by the Western River Expedition Company. Up the creek without a paddle? No problem. At Western River Expedition Company, we still move freight and passengers the old-fashioned way, with slow, reliable steam power through the spectacular but treacherous canyons along the rivers of America. Thrill to the sights and sounds of an amazing frontier river expedition, where the journey is more important than the destination, especially since you might never get there. Heck, some folks have been waiting for the boat to arrive since way back in 71. That's the Western River Expedition Company. Catch us if you can at Fowler's Landing in Thunder Mesa. And now please welcome to the program former Disney Imagineer and themed entertainment professional, Jim Shaw. Good morning, Dave. Thanks for inviting me aboard. Oh, well, it's great to have you here, and I appreciate you uh, uh, accommodating us with your schedule. It's, it's very nice of you. Um, now, you had quite a career at Disney. Um, 33 years, is that right? It was 33 years, just, 33 like the, years. Uh, just like the famous club in Disneyland. They have a club 33, and I have a 33-year career. Now, when, when you when you retire, do they give you a, 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 a membership to Club 33 after being there for 33 years? No. Uh, yes. No. In my dreams, yeah. In my <laughs> dreams, maybe. But no. Uh, no. No. That didn't happen. Although I finally did go down to Club Thirty Three after thirty three years, I I was an invited guest actually just last week to uh, a lunch and a meeting, lunch meeting. Yeah. Uh, about work, not Disney work. Ironically, yeah. I went to Club Thirty Three in Disneyland to talk to a client about not Disney work. But that's how it goes. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's awesome. I'm glad you finally got to go. Um, I know people that have been on the waiting list for you know a decade that can't get in there, but that's great. Um, now you started out in advertising, right? And later in, in television animation. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. I think my story probably. I don't know if you can replicate it today because a lot of it today seems to be. That you need a, a a good degree of four to six years, maybe even eight years. Mm-hmm. And when I started, it was kind of more the Wild West. Where I started 
where I got a job because I wanted to do a job, and I always raised my hand and said, yes, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. So I started in advertising, uh, and I started in marketing and advertising and production for an oil company of all things. Wow. And I basically did anything. Uh, but I started to find myself working a lot in Asia because no one else wanted to go to China. And again, I was young and hungry, and so I said, yeah, send me. So I found myself going to China and spent five years in that field. But I really always wanted to be closer to an- animation and theme parks. And so I transitioned as soon as I could out of the oil patch and went to work in animation where I started as an animator, quickly found I hated that because there's only so many <laughs> times you can draw someone's hair and do a hair flip. Right. Um, and I actually got tired because I'd have to go and beg for new pencils from the uh, supervisor of animation. You'd wow. have to turn in the old stub of pencil in order to get a new pencil. Oh, and what studio, studio was this that, that, that you were animating for? Uh, I worked originally for Filmation. Filmation, right. And Filmation was the last existing studio in California that did their own full animation. Every other studio mm-hmm. at that time had done, they were doing all the storyboard work and everything up to animation, but they'd ship that to Korea and to Japan. Right. Which, um, when I left Filmation, I started working for other studios like Marvel, uh, Hasbro, uh, Ruby Spears, Hanna Barbera, and many others. I basically did a lot of a lot of animation, but I did it in the storyboard capacity, mm-hmm. and I became a storyboard director. Right. Or basically everything up to the point where I'd hand it over to the technical director who do the exposure sheets, right. and that's the last step before it got shipped overseas. Yeah. So did, did you go to school for animation or uh, you went to UCLA, right? I did. I did. Unfortunately, you know, I never graduated. I always was too smart for my too smart <laughs> for myself thinking, right. oh, I don't need that. I'd rather do the work. I regret that looking back. Uh, but no, I, I did take classes. I've taken other classes in other mm-hmm. colleges and technical training since then. I'm a strong believer that, you know, technology continues to advance quickly. And if you're not up to date, you're going to be left by the side of the road quickly. Right. So I so I continue to, you know, go that direction. But I never did graduate. I yeah. did. Um, I learned mostly. You know, honestly, I'm I, I learn best from others who are smarter than I am. Mm. And so I would always find people who had done it for a longer time because you can go to. One thing I will say is going to school, taking classes, they'll you'll be taught often by somebody who either has never done it or hasn't done it for 10 years or 20. Right. And it's not the same as somebody who's really literally sitting there and they're working on it. And so I've had some intersections. When I worked at, that helped me a lot. And when I worked at um, Hanna-Barbera, for example, yeah, uh, I worked with uh, Jack Kirby, who had wow. worked Marvel Comics. And he came out to the West Coast because why wouldn't you leave New York to come out to Southern <laughs> California? Right. Um, and he was still working comics at the time. He was using Fed Express to send his work over back to New York. Mm-hmm. But he was working a lot at um, different studios. And he worked at Hanna Barbera. I also worked with Doug Wiley at Hanna Barbera. I worked it out with Alec Toth at Hanna Barbera. Wow. And in okay. each case, I learned a lot from them about how to tell stories. Mm-hmm. And they were my best trainers. They were my best teachers. 
Uh, yeah, it's really interesting. Just as an aside, I you know I started to, to to do animation. My my goal when I was in school was to be a, to work for Disney and do a Disney animation. And um, like you, I found that I got really tired of drawing the same hair flip over and over. <laughs> And over again, you know, doing the same thing. And I was more drawn towards illustration, which is what I ended up going into instead. But that's that's very interesting. I, I was fortunate enough to have a, a, an animation teacher who had worked for, who had more than 20 years of experience, old, crusty guy named George Gioper. And he said to me, the first thing you need to know if you want to go to work for Disney is Walt's dead. I said, okay, well, thanks, George. <laughs> that you you really clarified things for me but speaking of going to work for disney so so you were you were doing animation and eventually you wound up at walt disney, at Imagineering. Walt disney Imagineering. how did that and, happen well you know it's it's one of those things where i never started to i've always wanted to work at disney because right. to me you know if you're interested as i am in trains in mm -hmm. creating environments and immersive storytelling you want to work with a place that does that Right. And looking around, there really was no other place that did all of it the way Disney did. And, you know, naively, I kind of stumbled toward things. In my life, I stumbled toward things. I have a goal of what I want to do. Mm -hmm. And then based on what I want to do, then I go backward and think, well, how do I do that? Mm -hmm. So to tell this story there, I have a very good friend of over 45 years. His name is Tim Kirk. And we were both members of a local club called Waspus, which was LA Science Fantasy Society here in Los Angeles. And it dates back to the late 30s, I believe. And we met weekly. And as an offshoot of that, there's a comic book club. And so basically you have these group of, I'd call them kids, because that's what we were. We were kids and we were fans and we critique artwork and talk about the latest movie or the latest book or the latest comic or the latest you know, museum. Uh, mm -hmm. exposition and we would just talk and so I had this relationship with Tim and it was a casual one until he one day called me and said hey we would you like to meet for lunch and we, over lunch we talked about would I be interested in interviewing for a position at Disney Imagineering mm -hmm. and I said sure why not again naive walked into it and so I showed I uh, knocked on the door in Burbank no Glendale um, 1401 Glendale and walked in the door with my portfolio, walked in the hallway, uh, met with Peggy Ferris, who was sadly now departed, but she was basically the gatekeeper for portfolio reviews. And mm -hmm. she brought me to a room uh, in a trailer of all places. And it kind of, I thought, well, gee, Disney should be great and beautiful. And here I'm meeting this kind of crummy CD trailer. Um, <laughs> And I laid out my portfolio, and this guy walks in, this man walks in, looks at the portfolio, and then shows me some maps and drawings and asks me what I thought of them. And they were plans for a new park. And it was the what became the Disney MGM Studio Park in Florida. Yeah. And the man who looked at the portfolio was named Bob Weiss. I've heard of him, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, I, I heard of him after the fact. And so yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, I kind of have, like, closed portfolio and you know left left the cd trailer and went back home went back to my life and thought well that was nice and nothing else will come of it but then a phone call came of it yeah and after a bit of talking i ended up joining disney imagineering 
and I stayed there for 33 years. Now, you were into model trains, too, as a kid, right? You know, there's a question that I always ask Imagineers. It is a continuing conundrum. What is the deal with Imagineers and trains? Uh, I think that's baked into the DNA because of Walt. Yeah. And I can't speak, I can't conjure Walt here to ask him that question. <laughs> but I, I, I'll talk about my experience with trains. Um, when I was a very young child over Christmas, I was given an H-scale train, a big train. And it basically was that dumb loop that goes around the Christmas tree. Right. But I was still enchanted with it, even though it was on running across nylon pile carpet. I thought, oh, there's something there. And so I finagled and negotiated with my parents to give me an HO train set and got a piece of ply. And through the next several years, started to build a model train layout set. And then I'd come up with a better idea and I'd take it apart and tear it down and think, well, I need to build rock work. How do I do that? And mm -hmm. so I'd experiment with extruding plaster through small gauge wire to create stalagmites for my tunnel. Ooh. And then I'd go to not very far. I'm in one of the Calico mine train mm -hmm. and, you know, and be inspired by that. So that'd give me a new idea to come back and tear, you know, chisel another part of the train model train set away and, constantly evolved the set because what it became was a small miniature immersive environment representational of what I wanted to build. It wasn't the world, but it was a miniature of the world I wanted it to build ultimately. Right. And so it wasn't so much that I went to Imagineering to build a train set, that I wanted to go to Imagineering to scale up my train set. Right. And I suspect that's what Walt wanted to do because he wanted to scale up his train set. The little train that he rode around on in the studio or in his mm -hmm. home. Yeah. This was an opportunity to scale it up. And in our society, in a time when companies were train you know, companies were going bankrupt or throwing away their old equipment, you know, Walt was happy to take the old equipment and, you know, bring it back to life and run it around on his train yeah. uh, on his own personal train set there in Anaheim. Yeah, I, I, I agree. <clears throat> I, I can't conjure Walt here either, but I, I, I'm suspicious that uh, Disneyland was just his big train set. That's, <laughs> that's the way I always thought. Was, this was his model train layout. You know? And he, he just came up with everything else to justify the cost. That's my personal well, theory on it. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to look at the train set. I mean, we can talk for a moment. The, the, train, the train set in Anaheim recently got a major upgrade about three mm -hmm. years ago now. Yeah. with the additional Galaxy's Edge, because that caused the train to be moved. And I think it's really interesting, because in all the train, well, the train in Anaheim always went clockwise, and it always right. veered to the right. Mm -hmm. It never turned to the left until, and that was always the case in all the train, where right. all the layouts in Paris or Orlando or Anaheim, but Hong Kong broke them all, because when you leave Main Street in... Hong Kong, you bear not to the right, but you bear to the left. Mm -hmm. And then you jog back to the right. So that was unusual. And then finally, they did the same thing in Anaheim with the addition of Galaxy's Edge, where you bear to the right, and then you bear to the left, and you bear to the right again. So right. it's more of a meandering path. And when I ride the new one, I ask myself, do I like the new one, or do I hold on to nostalgia and charming memories of my youth to love the old one more? 
Right. I kind of like them both. I mean, I, I, I remember because in the, before Galaxy's Edge, when you got back back there in the woods, it really felt like you were out in the forest, out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but now, you know, trestles and waterfalls and beautiful rock work. Who doesn't like that kind of stuff? I mean, it's uh, it's pretty neat. I think they did a real nice job with it. Yeah, um, I, I agree. I, I wish they, they could have had both because yeah. like you, you know, to come from Anaheim, hot, crowded, smoggy, mm-hmm. and to suddenly be in the deep, dark forest was right. really magical and transformational. Yeah. And now to replace that with majestic waterfalls and I think better staging and more awkward, who doesn't love that? But I'd mm-hmm. like to have had both. Well, the trees will grow. You know, yeah. there's, there's, they planted lots of trees there along the, the berm to Galaxy's Edge, so those will, those will all get big, and eventually they'll dwarf the rock work like they do <laughs> every place else. So, getting back to starting with WDI, what was your first project that they uh, hired you on? Pro- well, the first project that was built was Mickey's Toontown. Uh-huh. Uh, like all Imagineers, I think we probably have a batting average of one in ten. That for every ten, <laughs> every, every ten projects that you pitch or involved with, one actually gets built. Right. And so my first project about two or three years after it started was Mickey's Toontown. Mm-hmm. And that grew out of an idea that people wanted to meet Mickey Mouse. They didn't want to have to chase him around the park, chase him down for that autograph. They wanted to have a dedicated space for him. And so out of that came this idea of having a dedicated neighborhood where Mickey couldn't appear. Mm-hmm. And it came shortly after the success of Mickey's birthday land in Florida because again that was a quick um, a quick reaction to building um, a dedicated space for Mickey's his 60s celebration that they were doing there and right. so Anaheim seized on that as an opportunity and excuse to build a permanent home yeah. and over time that evolved and kind of like all things imaginary you start with the idea of saying let's build a simple birthday land Oh, no, 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 let's not do that. Let's do something really good. <laughs> and so going back to the 1930s, 1940s cartoons, we developed Mickey's Neighborhood, which was my area that I really focused on. Mm. And then Mickey's, then downtown Toontown, where, is, where Roger Rabbit is, and it'll also be the home of the future of Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway that, they're, right. that they've announced. Yeah. There was some some footage leaked online, I think, yesterday of them doing demolition on the old gag factory, which is now going to be the entrance to the ride, I assume. I thought it was interesting they were doing that in broad daylight. Usually they do that kind of stuff at night after the guests go home, but uh, I I guess they probably had contractual obligations or something that that was the only time they could do it. That would just be my guess. Who knows? I don't know. It's a tight little area. They could have done it for that reason. They could have done it for whatever reason. I'm not sure you can call it being leaked, though, when you're doing it in broad daylight. Um, yeah. But yes, I've seen, I saw a couple videos last night and I saw another one today. So it's, mm-hmm. it's well out there and people are speculating. It's in public domain. Yeah. Um, that's, that's, that used to, we used to call that bad show, but who knows? <laughs> it's no show. It's new show. That's right. So Mickey's Toontown, and then they came to you and said, how would you like to go to Europe, right? They came to me, uh, they came to me interestingly, because like all things, um, coming from animation, typically you work on an animation project in television 
for about six months. Mm-hmm. And you work, you work, you work, and then you're out of work. And right. so in my mind, I came to WDI thinking, oh, good, I'll work on a project and then I'll go to another company because I thought it was like animation that I was used to. But uh, so I found myself at the end of Mickey's Toontown on a Monday, literally thinking, OK, I'm going to have to look for work. And then on Tuesday, they came to me. Uh, Tony Baxter came to me and said, I heard you're available. You work for me on Toontown. We're going to do the additional capacity program for Disneyland Paris. Mm. Would you be interested? And because I always say yes to everything, yeah, I said yes to that, not knowing what it was going to be. But it ended up with me working, being the creative director on four projects for five years. And wow. worked in Glendale, where everything starts, and then relocated to Paris for the last of the three projects. Mm-hmm. So you worked. You you were primarily Fantasyland. Is that your area there uh, at did, uh, Paris? Yeah, I did three in Fantasyland. I did. Um, I did the. Well, there was an old mill. There was an old mill in Fantasyland near mm-hmm. Small World, and it was a food snack food area. And I looked at that and I thought, well, we need capacity, so I pitched taking an off-the-shelf ride from a company named Zero. Yeah. And then attaching it to the back. And in my mind, I'm always I'm always driven by story. I always need a story justification for everything. Because I believe if I can tell a story to a guest, they're more than willing to buy into that story and go with me on, on my journey. Mm-hmm. So in my mind, the windmill was taking wind energy and transmitting it through the back of the windmill to a screw, an Archimedes screw that then turned the Ferris wheel Right. That looked like water buckets, which then in turn meant that I had to have a water stream beneath it, which then mm-hmm. in turn meant that it had to go underneath the train trestle and then feed the storybook land canal boats. <laughs> and so I start with this idea of a story thread and I pull that story thread all the way through. And so I started with the old mill Ferris wheel and then that went on to doing the canal boats. And next to that was the Casey Jr powered roller coaster mm-hmm. so i did those three in fantasy land yeah yeah that's that's uh, that's interesting about about story um that's a, that's a that's a word that's thrown a lot around a lot in themed entertainment and imagineering in particular and i think there's a lot of misunderstanding about it uh just my personal view is that it's not necessarily we're not necessarily t- talking about telling a narrative you know a, a you know this happens this happens this happens this happens narrative with with an attraction because an attraction is really not a great narrative device and a narrative vehicle but more the story informs the uh, informs the design it, it gives you a framework to hang all those things on like the water buckets going into the the storybook land canal. I mean, guests may never make that connection themselves, but it informed the design. Is, is, is that accurate? Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you. There's a thin line between overthinking and underthinking the importance of story. Yeah. You know, and to your point, you know, I didn't tell a story. I didn't hang a plaque next to the old mill Ferris wheel saying, right. you know, Mr. Archimedes built this in 1404 to play please his <laughs> daughter Rebecca right you know, and on and on and on because you don't need that and again in when I develop a story part of what I do 
and I think the most important thing is I edit, is I will tell that story to myself about old man Archimedes pleasing his daughter Rebecca, and mm-hmm. then I'll go through my process saying, oh, okay, I don't need that. Right. The guest doesn't need to know that. However, what's important is the Archimedes screw and the justification to the wind energy, the powers, the water buckets that has the stream beneath it. All of that is important. Old Mac Archimedes is not important. So right. I think there's a case where you have to make a story consistent and sincere enough to be believable. Right. Um, but you don't have to overtell or overlabor the story because then it looks like you're trying too hard, which makes me suspicious. And also, I'm <laughs> a firm believer I don't want to work that hard when I go to a theme park. <laughs> if you're asking me to pay several hundred dollars and take hours of my life, both to plan and attend, I want to be entertained. I don't want to work. And the moment you ask me to work, then I'm going to tune out. And I assume most guests have that same viewpoint. Right. They don't want to be given homework, right? We don't want to do homework. I mean, here's a note I'll make. In in England, there's a word that I love, and it used to be, it was called a folly. Many Mm -hmm. people, many wealthy people on their estates would build these Roman temples or Chinese pagodas or whatever, and they were called follies. Mm -hmm. And the idea, they were just really to amuse themselves, and they, they were a fragment of architecture which had meaning to them, but they were not over-labored. They were just simply fun to look at, fun to be around. They were immersive, they were entertaining, and they were unique. Right. And so if I go to, well, let's talk about this for a moment. I did Casey Jr., which is the only powered roller coaster we've ever done yeah. in Paris. It doesn't have a story behind it. It doesn't tell the story of Dumbo. It just is a really cool powered roll circus train. And that's all you need to know. There's a little bit of graphic, there's a little bit of stage setting, and it's a fun little ride. And when you're on it, you get to look down into the scenes of Storybook Canal and out into Fantasyland. Right. You could tell more story, but you don't need more story than that. So it's that fine line of what do you need and what do you want? And I always veer on, this is what I need, mm-hmm. this is not what I want. Right. Trying to the yeah, there's a, there's an economy there. You have to know, I have a friend that says you have to know where the, the cool line is. It's cool up to this point, and then you cross that line, and it's it's not, it's it's over-labored, it's not cool. It becomes a book report. You know, it's not, uh, it's more than they need to know. Um, yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Uh, now, you've worked a lot overseas. You've traveled a lot for the company in Paris and, and Asia. Um, what are some of the difference differences between working uh, at the domestic parks or, or, or domestically and working overseas? Uh, the, the largest one is cultural differences. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to translate language. It's very difficult to translate culture. Mm-hmm. And there are small nuances in that. Even I worked quite a bit on a number of projects in Orlando, Florida. And surprisingly, there's a lot of cultural difference between someone who lives on the East Coast and somebody who lives on the West Coast. Mm. They're not pronounced because as Americans, we you know, we all have Starbucks, we all have Arby's, we all have McDonald's. So we have certain touch points. Mm. But when you go to Europe, 
you don't have the same touch points. You have Western culture that we share, but someone who lives in Europe, in France, for example, they live in a cold, damp climate most of the time. Right. In California, we live in a hot, dry Mediterranean climate. Mm -hmm. So when Disneyland Paris was designed, it was designed by Californians for Paris, which led to building these covered arcades through the entire Disneyland Paris park. Because as a Californians, we don't want to get wet. And we made the assumptions, <laughs> oh, Parisians don't want to get wet. And guess what? You know, we were wrong. They don't care. Right. They don't care. I mean, to. obviously, if, you know, if there's, a, if there's a thunderstorm or a tempest, as they call it, Mm -hmm. They don't go outside. They have more common sense than Americans do. You yes. know, they go and stay inside. But mm -hmm. if it's a normal, cloudy, dank day with mist or light rain, they dress for it and go outside. Right. It's no big deal. That's no great. Deal. Yeah. Speaking of cultural differences, uh, Shanghai, which you worked on, uh, is the only castle park without a railroad. Do you can you give any insight into? I mean, I've heard the official explanations as to, as to why that is. Um, uh, it has a train station, but 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 no, there's no Shanghai Disneyland Railroad, and even Hong Kong has a railroad. So what 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 were the decisions? Why does not Shanghai not have a railroad? Well, in the same way, I can't conjure Walt. I can't conjure <laughs> yeah. you know, the, the people, the wise people who sat in a room and said, there shall not be a railroad. Uh -huh. um, you know, so I'm going to give you my impressions about it. And okay. You know, it's kind of, I'm going to give you a fluorescent, I can't speak, speak that word. I'm trying to be, see, I'm trying to be too clever and um, <laughs> I, you can edit that bit out. Um, what I feel is this, if you look at Shanghai Disneyland, there really are, the remnants of two train stations. Yeah. There's a one as you enter the park, which mm -hmm. I refer to it more as a gatehouse, but it really does look like a train station. It does. And then the second one is if you go to the very end of Mickey Avenue, as you make the turn to the right into Adventure Isle, there's a retail shop. And again, it really does look like a train station. Mm -hmm. And um, it has a lot of that. So I think that there's a lot of you know, muscle memory at Disney that, you know, kicked in. And so the trains aren't completely abandoned. Um, having said that, I think there was an assumption that today in China, they're rapidly embracing the personal automobile. Mm. But that wasn't the case 10, certainly not 20 years ago. Yeah. People relied on public transportation, which was predominantly trains. Right. And so they don't have the romance, romantic vision that Westerners have of trains. Mm -hmm. From where I live, I'm 20 minutes away from Lang Station, yeah. where the train uh, railroad was linked through the West Coast. Yeah. And there's a monument, and it's glorified, and it's wonderful. And in China, they really don't have that. Trains mm -hmm. were built fast and quick because they needed them to be functional. The right. function was to transport people to work or to shopping or between villages or cities. So they don't have that background. They don't have that romance. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think the assumption was that you wouldn't bring in something that they didn't have an emotional connection to. 
having said that, if there was a train, would they accept it? Would they look upon it as a ride, as a, as a fun folly and experience? You know, I would make a submission that, yes, it would be. That yeah. they would look at it as, you know, just, hey, I'm going to go to the theme park and ride this really cool yeah. looking steam train and have a good time. And that's, it's a ride. They would treat yeah. it, not the romance, but they would enjoy it nevertheless. Yeah, I mean, my argument would be that uh, they don't have a romantic connection to European castles either. And yet there's a really big one <laughs> right yeah. in the middle of the park. Oh, by the way, <laughs> that castle, ignore, but that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, ignore that big pink thing in the center of the park. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. There's a real problem there. Uh, you know, my assumption when I first started design is I assume people know nothing. Because you really, you have to really assume that. You, mm -hmm. you know, I don't care. I mean, let's take a movie like, let's take Titanic. Yeah. Number one movie, it was number one in the box office in theaters for, I think, nine months. But it's not in theaters today. Mm -hmm. No one's ever made more money than Avatar. It's not in theaters today. So I have to make an assumption that when you build something, the guest has never seen the movie or knows the story in which the attraction was based upon. Mm -hmm. So you really have to talk about that. Um, and so to that end, you don't want to make it overly complex where they feel stupid, that they right. don't know every nuance. At the same time, you don't want to, you want to make it available enough that they can have fun with it and play along. Right. Right. Um, Toy Story Land would be an example of that. If mm. I can talk about that. For oh, sure. Please. So I did the first Toy Story Land that was in Paris. And again, naively thinking I was mean to need a Paris, but it succeeded. And so we built four more, <laughs> three more, excuse me, there are four total. And there's one in Paris, Orlando, Hong Kong, and Shanghai. But when I did the pitch for Shanghai to Bob Iger, my pitch was that everyone is or has been a child, everyone does or has a play has played with toys yeah. meaning it doesn't matter if you know if you're a 60 year old chinese businessman you know at some point you did play with a toy and you have that muscle memory and therefore it would translate and bridge across the cultures and it has it again was successful in paris mm -hmm. before it was successful in hong kong right. uh, but we built four of them and we built a toy store hotel that i was creative director on and we're currently now building the, not we, me, not me personally, <laughs> uh, but it's uh, a second Toy Story hotel in Tokyo is now being built. So if you if you pitch a story correctly, no matter how obscure or oblique it is, I'm convinced that you can be successful if you do certain things in a certain order. You can tell virtually any story to anyone and have them embrace it. Yeah. Yeah, it's all about making a connection. It's all about making those connections with people, with their emotions and and the, whatever those are. Uh, and Imagineering is, is very much a team sport where, you know, you're working with other people and, and balancing a lot of factors uh, in order to, to get the project done. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, about that balancing act? Like, 
because you know um, you have to put your ego aside. Everything you do, you do for Imagineering is, has got Disney's name on it, not Jim Schultz's name on it, and not every creative can do that. And I, th- I think maybe they don't last that long in a place like Imagineering. Um, so, so what's what's you know what's that like to 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 work? I mean, you because it's a trade-off. I understand you get to do these amazing big projects that you would never to be able to do on your own. Um, but at the same time, you're pretty much the anonymous man behind the curtain. Yeah, it, and, and that's true. I mean, I, I never really got into social media until the last six months because I always believed that my work should speak for me. I shouldn't speak for myself. Mm. And there are Imagineers who became personalities in their own right while they're yeah. at Disney. And yeah. typically, they don't last because when it starts becoming about you as a person rather than the work, mm. it's, you know, you have to make, you start making compromises. You start having a secondary agenda where you won't do a project unless you personally gain glory out of it. And mm. I'm not comfortable with that. I don't think that leads, to, I think that does not lead to successful projects. And mm. so my focus has always been let my work speak for me. Uh, and even today, since, you know, not being a Disney, I'm, I share things as a fan. I don't share them as a former Imagineer. Right. And that's always been my, my viewpoint. For example, obviously, for reasons of non-disclosure, there are things I know and stories I know and things, you know, information I have, right. which I can't share. And mm-hmm. I, nor would I, because there's no reason to share that, except if I wanted to get personal glory, which I don't. There's enough right. cool stuff about Disney right now yeah. that people could spend all their days looking at the cool stuff that's already available. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't need me to come in and say something. Moreover, a lot of what happens you know, are reviews. There are their rumors. Mm. And projects typically will take, I'd say, three to five, up to seven years, like Shanghai did, right. to go from blue sky to opening day. And a lot can happen in those three to seven years. And right. so if I said to you today, you know what? Two years ago, Dave, I heard this and this <laughs> happened. And I heard a rumor that, you know, Disney's going to build something in Argentina. Right. They're not. I never heard that. But let's right. see. I, I shared that. Yes, you just started a rumor, Jim. It's going to be I, all over Twitter tomorrow. No doubt. <laughs> no doubt. Argentina. And it's easy right. to do because, you know, unfortunately, and I've mentioned this before, I was recently interviewed by a reporter at the Chicago Tribune. We went on a sidebar where I, I thanked him for being a journalist. And there's mm-hmm. several other people I always thank because they, when they do interviews and we have conversations, it's always... I can tell people who have a journalism background because they want to check, they want to do fact check, right. they want to be fair and accurate, they want to verify what I say, as opposed to somebody who simply wants a Twitter hit, mm-hmm. because there's a good, you know, there's a good rumor, as you just said, Jim Schull, Imagineer, just said, right, <laughs> you know, Argentina, see it, you know, they'll open it next week. It'll be on Inside the Magic like next week, yeah. No doubt, no doubt. <laughs> um, so I, I really don't want to talk about anything but the work itself or my right. work. And again, there's a lot to talk about there. Um, but Disney Imagineering basically operates in teams, mm-hmm. and the teams tend to self-select, where if you have a tendency to work on 
I don't know, Tomorrowland projects, futuristic, if you have industrial engineering background, if you like to be forward thinking, that's a team that you'll be, want to be on. And you'll want mm-hmm. to be on projects with people of that similar outlook. Right. On the other hand, if you like fantasy, you'll end up with in Toy Story or Pixar projects, as I did, mm-hmm. uh, Fantasyland, you'll end up there. Or there's another route, which are nature-based. Mm-hmm. So you might end up in a Adventure Isle, Adventure Land, Frontier Land, and people tend to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, Skip Lang, who's really a good friend, now sadly par- passed, was a master of rock work doing rock work for the Thunder Mountains. Yeah. And he was just a brilliant, brilliant, unheralded designer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's a great example of somebody who could do a sketch, who could communicate, but also field art direct at the same time looking at budget and schedule. Because mm-hmm. if you can't deliver a project, doesn't matter how good your ideas are. You yeah. have to be able to afford it, schedule it, deliver it, and when we are in the field, you know, I call them the army appears, where you'll mm-hmm. have contractors and subcontractors appear. And literally in Shanghai, for example, I believe it was 14,000 people who worked on that project at one time. Wow. And I guarantee not all 14,000 were Disney fans. <laughs> and yeah. just showed up because, hey, this is a job. Right. They need the job. They had the work. And so as a creative director, I had to communicate what was important for their job for them to do during those eight hours of their day. Right. What so, did they need? To, what did they need to know to do their job? What is a typical team like that you, you that you would work with? Who are the, who are the what are the roles of the members on that team? Uh, well, the roles teams yeah. tend to start very small. There's usually the, the creative director. Yeah. Just me. And the time, the titles have changed. We've been called show directors, show designers, creative directors, executive creative directors. But basically, you have your creative lead. That's the person who comes up with the ideas, the idea, and holds it, refines it, communicates it to the other members of the creative team. Uh-huh. The creative team will generally be people who are production designers, graphic designers, line designers, media designers, and they're the ones who kind of put the the idea together. Right. realize it and you start to staff based upon do I have a movie do I have a ride show attraction that needs rock work oh I need this talent do I have one that needs media oh I need this talent they're mm. not exclusive they're not not everyone works in the same project right the second group would be your project management management team and under them would be your schedulers your uh, estimators your uh, your contractors your Civil engineers, uh, facility engineers, and I'm going to fig- forget all the group, but it's a lot. And they, yeah. you can't build anything, you can't open anything without that dedicated right. team. Right. And the project manager is usually the person who comes to you and says, you can't do that or you can't afford it. And that's when I have to negotiate with them saying, mm. well, if I can't afford this, can I afford that? And a lot right. of times I'll get an estimate that say says, Oh, you can't afford this, and then we go into a loop of negotiating about what I can afford. So that's the second group. The third group will be your show producers, and they're Mm -hmm. basically the group that is the bridge between the creative and the uh, project management team. 
they're the ones that kind of are the bridge that run back and forth to make sure that all the trains run on time. If, mm-hmm. if the project team needs a piece of information, he'll come in, or he or she will come and get the information for me. On the other hand, if I need an estimate, they'll go get that for me to look at. So it's it's a back and forth, but it's basically those three groups. Right. That changes once the project is capitalized. I mean, capitalization is basically you are handcuffed to your idea. Mm. Everyone agrees, we're going to do this. We're going to do it on, and open it on this date for this amount of money, and it's going to look like this. And everybody yeah. agrees, they, all the people who you need sign the piece of paper, and mm-hmm. at that point you have a checkbook, which is great because you have freedom for the next three years, you know what you're going to do, and your single focus is on doing that new ride or show yep. or attraction. Right. So that takes usually the next three years of my life. Huh. Now, is there a is there a responsibility that you you have felt working at WDI <laughs> to to live up to the legacy of Walt and the original Imagineers, people like Mark Davis and John Hentz and Claude Coates, et cetera. I mean, these guys are literal legends. Um, is that a lot of pressure? Uh, yeah, it was every day. I mean, Claude yeah. was my personal hero. Mm-hmm. And when I got to Imagineering, Claude was still there at Imagineering. And he had a small, nondescript office down the Gold Coast overlooking a parking lot, which is like, you're thinking, hey, this is the man who designed inner space and peter pan and pirates rainbow, rainbow you know, caverns yeah really kind of nondescript shabby office mm-hmm. but i would spend all my time because again mentoring is really important and i try to mentor others at my time at imaginary because i call it tribal knowledge you really gain experience and there's really no book for this mm-hmm. there have been attempts to write books about how right. you this work and it's they're generally not very good. Uh, but I spent a lot of time in Claude's office when I got there, so much so one day he looked up from his drawings and, and asked me, do I have an office? And I said, yes, I do have an office. And he looked at me more sternly and said, I suggest you go to it. <laughs> Take a hint, kid. Take a That's hint, kid. <laughs> and he's actually taller than I am. I'm like 6'2", and Claude, I think, is 6'4". Yeah, but he and I became really good friends. Um, he'd invite me to his house, and you know, he and his wife would sit around having their cocktail hour, mm. and he'd tell stories, which you know, are stories not stories not to be told outside the cocktail hour. But right. he, again, he worked at the studio, worked for Walt. He knew the ins and outs and where the bodies were buried. And the interesting stories are usually the ones that you wouldn't think are interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's more about the process and how they did things and you know the the day-to-day routine of you know why they changed why they took catfish off the menu at the commissary and the (laughs) commissary was never the same when they took the catfish off (laughs) why was that yeah or the or they're drinking hole in the bowling alley down the street off the studio where walt couldn't find them Mm. they had closed for renovation and the, the hubbub was, why are they, they going to reopen my watering hole? 
<laughs> Again, you know, nobody, you don't think of those as Disney stories, but believe me, you wouldn't have a Disney if not for Right. Well, what stories. you're talking about, I think, is is institutional memory. You know, that, that passing down, that mentorship, that apprenticeship even, you know, from one generation to the next. And that, that's something that concerns me as a fan going forward is is the loss of institutional memory at, at Disney. I, you know, I, I, I'm not sure, and you don't need to comment on this if, if you don't feel comfortable. Uh, I'm not sure that, that, um, that it's valued as highly as it should be, I think. For, for a company like Disney, it's so important, that institutional memory, I think, because that's, that's where it is. That's, that's where the DNA of the company exists, is in, is in the memories and the stories and the, uh, the practices and uh, um, abilities of those people. Yeah, I, I have to agree with you on that. Um, my experience coming from animation was that I was shocked when I got to Disney Imaginary, or imagine, uh, again, something else for you to edit, but I worked at Disney <laughs> Animation, and I was shocked that you had two tiers of people, and there were generational tiers. You had yeah. the original, very old men, the nine old who wore cardigans and had their, you know, their, their lunches at the bubbling alley, and then you had people who were 20 or 30 years younger, but you had no one in the center. And the reason you didn't have anyone in the center were various reasons. One of them was there was a business plan on how often they released animation. Mm. Animated movies were released so many years. You only need so many people for that. You had people who worked who were long who had longevity and they hadn't retired yet. Yeah. And so you had no reason to bring in other people, younger people, and as a result you had a gap of a generation that was missing. Right. Um, at WDI, about 10 years ago, there was a report made that within 10 years, 60% of everyone in Imagineering would reach retirement age. That's 60% of your institutional memory that walks out the door. Right. And it's not for any reason, and it certainly got accelerated by COVID right. and the redundancies. Um, but, you know, people do get old. People do want to retire and do something else with their life. You know, I personally have no other life so you know I continue, to, I continue to work I continue to to roll along but I think there's a real need to invest in maintaining that institutional memory because it's more than just technical knowledge um, for example going, going back to Lossus Ray Bradbury the great famous author would come right. and talk one thing that you said in a talk was every 20 years, kid, find another career because technology will change. And so even if you're the best person making, I don't know, well, toilet lids or doing typography, if you run the linotype machine, well, guess what? In 20 years, you'll have computer and you'll have desktop publishing. So it doesn't right. matter if you're a linotype operator, you have no job. And so in the same way, if you have a technical skill and if Disney or any company relies on technical aptitude and technical skill, those skills will be erased or made obsolete Absolutely. within a very short amount of time because technology is constantly changing. So therefore, I'd say that Disney needs to, or any company needs to recognize and invest 
in institutional memory if they want mm-hmm. to succeed. Because relying right. on technical expertise is not is a short-term solution, not a long-term solution. Now, we talked about the pressure of, of living up to the legacy of, of those original uh, Imagineers. What about fr- fan pressure? You know, you, you're a fan as, as well as, a, as a, a, an insider. And, um, you know, some of these, these Disney fan sites can just, just be brutal. I mean, you, you paint a trash can a different color and you'll hear about it for weeks. Um, is, is the fan reaction something that you ever think about while, while uh, on a project? Well, I, or I, just I, afterwards? <laughs> well, I'll put it this way. You know, there's part of me as a designer that's still locked in an age between 8 and 12. Yeah. And so I design for that person who's 8 to 12. And so at some point it has to resonate with me. Otherwise, I can't support or sign up for that project. Mm-hmm. So naively, I assume if I like it, other people will like it as well. Obviously, not everybody likes the same story. They don't like the same, you know, some people will put mayonnaise on their French fries. Right. You know, it's, some people put mustard on their French fries. I put ketchup on my French fries. Doesn't mean the other two people are wrong. It just means we have a different taste. So if the right. fan community gets upset because the trash can is painted a different color, yeah, I, I accept that. That's they they have the right to believe that. Mm-hmm. I only have a problem when they make an assumption that there's some evil plan behind painting the trash can a color they don't like. Right. As if it's a personal affront to them and their taste. Mm-hmm. That or I go. You know, I have a problem with that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and 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 too, there's 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 different levels there. There there are the hardcore Disney fans, people that actually go to the fan sites and things like that. And then there's the, but ninety nine percent of the guests at Disney Park, well, I don't fall into that category. You know, they're just Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Joe Public and with their kids and. They're going to have a good time, and so you really—it's—you can't really design for the hardcore fan. You have to, and, and I ask this question a lot of, of guests: is, is do you think that people of our generation look back at things through the rose-colored glasses of nostalgia and imagine them to be better than they actually were? And when they get taken out, it's like, oh, they're destroying my childhood and they're doing something new and that I don't like and I don't agree with. Do you think that's true? Do you think do you think there's a lot of uh, you think that uh, nostalgia plays a role and that we're not necessarily seeing thing as things as clearly or objectively as we should sometimes? Well, I think you're right. And I think there's a good reason for that. Most of our fond memories, I mean, let's be honest, Disney attracts families. Mm-hmm. With a child, if you go with your parents and siblings right. and you go to Disneyland and you mm-hmm. have a great memory with your parents and siblings you know, and your partner, um, then you have a really fond memory. Mm-hmm. And so if you go back today, you think you, you forget that there was chain link around the canal boats. Right. You forget about that. You're just thinking about that great family memory you had of canal boats. Mm-hmm. So I think you can't really, you have to separate the two. So if somebody has a great memory 
then I respect that. If they have a, if they start to criticize why we don't leave ch chain link, I would question whether that was really the reason for their memory. I don't think mm -hmm. most people have great memories about chain link. No, they do. I yeah. Um, and the other note I'll make briefly is that I do treat all Imagineers or fans of Imagineering as sincere until proven otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd say, honestly, I've gotten some weird comments from people. Um, people ask me why something was painted pink. Uh, and, you know, I thank them and, you know, I wouldn't say ignore them, but I, I sidestep the question. Yeah. Obviously, when people ask me very directly for inside information or something that hasn't been made public, you know, that's definitely a sidestep. Mm -hmm. I'm not asking them personal questions about their life. Right. Their business. Or their business. Right. right. So, you know, I would encourage all fans to keep, you know, keep that line between ask yourself, are you asking a question that you wouldn't want to be asked yourself? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is no, then don't. Well, that brings up an interesting point. It's there's a certain level of entitlement there with Disney. I think we, if when you grow up with it <clears throat> and have wonderful memories, you bring your family and you want to go back with your kids and have them have the same experience that you had. You you tend to feel in, entitled to that a little bit. I think people do, and, and they they may feel entitled to that inside information. <laughs> they want inquiring well, want minds want to know. You know. Yeah, and I, I think we invite that. Because remember, Disneyland doesn't build anything that people need. Disneyland mm -hmm. doesn't need to be there. Right. You know, you don't need Disneyland. You need a dry cleaner. You need a grocery <laughs> store and a gas station. But you don't need a theme park, whether it's Disneyland, Universal, Magic Mountain, Six Flags. Mm -hmm. You don't need those. Chimalong, you don't need those parks. What Disney builds is something we want you to want. Mm -hmm. You want Disneyland. Therefore... We want to build a, a personal emotional connection right. with you. So in that regard, if we shouldn't be surprised. We, Disney, should not be surprised when someone says, hey, you asked me to build a relationship with you, an emotional relationship with you, and mm -hmm. now 30 years later, you took down the California letters in front of DCA that right. everyone hated, but I loved. Because my daughter's name is Allison, and I have a photograph of Allison, my daughter, in front of the A, mm -hmm. and I have a, a memory that you told me to have with that park. Right. So we should not be, we, Disney, should not be surprised when we ask for an emotional connection that people have an emotional connection. Mm -hmm. That brings up another interesting point. As an Imagineer. As someone who works for years and years on these projects, <clears throat> do you develop an emotional connection to these things? And how do you feel when they're changed in the future by the next generation of Imagineers? Ah, so funny you said that. It, you know, <laughs> Rich Shane across the internet starting last <laughs> night was tearing the video of uh, Disney doing demo work on Mickey right. Five and Dime in Toontown. Mm-hmm. I That's what I was thinking of. Yeah, I was just thinking of I, that. I worked on that. So here's here's my first project, and I'm seeing you know a, a live, basically a live demo where people are live streaming it, mm -hmm. and I ask myself, you know, gee, how do I feel about that? Well, you know, we don't. 
the question I always ask myself when I have demo work of things I've done, is it better? That's the question I ask. Right. Is it going to be better? Obviously, if it's worse, I'm not going to like it so much, but I react as a fan, not as Jim Scholl designer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and before I left WDI, I did work on Mickey and Minnie's Railroad, Railroad for DC, no, for California, wrong part, for Disneyland. So I know what's being built there. Yeah. Um, and frankly, as a, you know, emotionally as a guest, I'm glad they're building a big e-ticket in Mickey's Toontown mm-hmm. because it needed that. It needed that from the very beginning. It needed something big because Roger Rabbit is a great ride. The old yeah. coaster is a great roller coaster for children, yeah. but it didn't have a big anchor attraction, which Mickey and Minnie's will give it. Right. So from that aspect, I really applaud it. I think it's going to be better. From the nostalgia you know, side, my memories are, oh, I remember when I was with the project team and we were picking the colors for the building mm-hmm. and putting the gag factory machine in and so on. But those are personal memories, which I have photographs and documentation of. And right. so they sit in a shelf in my office, in my yeah. home studio. Um, but life moves on. You know, yeah. things are going to change. Things get torn down. I also worked on Rock and Roller Coaster in Florida. Right. And Rock and Roller Coaster in Paris. And luckily, uh, I worked as creative director, executive creative director on the reimagining of Rock and Roller Coaster Paris into the Iron Man Coaster, mm-hmm. which is currently being built. And again, the same. The same, uh, the same rule applies. When I was given that assignment, the rule was, do I make this better than it was? Right. And I'm convinced that what is being built, what was designed and what is being built will be better than what is, it's replacing. So yeah. that's always my personal rule. Yeah. That's like uh, Tony Baxter had a well-known quote about that when, when designing the new fantasy land for Disneyland. It's like, well, you know, coming in, he, he, the morning of the demolition, he walks in and says, oh, my God, what have we done? Yeah. <laughs> you know, tearing out our it's icon, icons of everyone's childhood, uh, including his own. He's like, well, if you're going to replace it, you, you it better be better. It, it has to be with something yeah. better. You got to plus well, the show. And that's true, because I, I work with Tony and Chris Carradine was the architect for that new mm-hmm. Fantasyland project. You know, he spent a lot of time. We were talking, where I asked him the question you did about how do you how do you make it better, and it, I think that put a lot of pressure on that team. Um, ironically, it also provided a test case case to develop the ideas that then they took to Paris mm-hmm. for that version of Fantasyland. So it right. was a a proof. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you really want the old original fantasy land, go to Hong Kong because the old original fantasy land lives it's on. It's still there. Yeah, it's still there. That's great. Yeah, they, they, they went with the Ivan Earl tournament tent version of mm-hmm. fantasy land. And you worked on uh, DCA 2.0. Yes, I did. I what did. was your, what was your role there? Well, again, um, by then I was the creative director and I had the creative director role. So, um, Bob Weiss, again, mm-hmm. called me. He calls me out of the blue. I, I'd always think, what am I going to do? And I get a phone call from Bob, and I think he you know, read my mental telepathy. But he called me one time and, and asked me point blank. He said, since I know you like the old Victorian pleasure parks and lakefront parks and trolley parks, 
we'd like to go that direction more with uh, Paradise Pier mm -hmm. to get away from the steel pier look. And so I became the creative director for the new version of uh, Pleasure uh, for Paradise Pier. Paradise Pier. And so basically kind of demoed a lot of things that were there, like the organ stinger and made it into the silly symphony swings, right. softened it, brought in the board bat, the, the shingles, the lighter paints, the, the softer look, more trees, mm -hmm. more water, uh, personal vendetta. I had a personal vendetta with the waterfront because you never could get more than closer than eight feet above the water. So <laughs> right. I did a... Uh, a large patio beneath the Silly Symphony Swings where mm. people could sit in shade on benches looking at the five acres of water on the lagoon right. to do nothing but just sit with their family and rest. So that was part of what I did. I also then worked um, with the Pixar team and did the two flat rides in Cars Land mm. uh, where I was a strong believer and had a nostalgic memory of flying saucers, the original flying saucers. So right. I, I did the work on uh, Luigi's Flying Tires, which briefly appeared uh, in Cars Land. Mm -hmm. And I did Mater's Junkyard Jamboree, which was a lot more successful. Uh, so much so that those four, that ride system then appeared in four other parks in different forms. Right. Don't you have a patent on that? Ride system? Uh, yeah, I do. I do. It was one of the things. There was a period where uh, WDI really pushed for people to give, be given patents, so I got a patent on this this ride system and then some other ride systems as well. So I'm famous. I'm 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 in the, I'm in the role of the I'm down in the recorded depths of the U.S. Patent Office. Wow. What what, what was the other one? The uh, Rock and Roller Coaster. Wasn't it? The, there, the there was one, and then there was one for an articulate seat back for a roller coaster. Mm, okay. And that was never implemented. Uh, well, Disney and I have the patent on it. Yeah. What's What's interesting about, you know, all of this, um, and I should have mentioned earlier when you talked about the team, ride system managers are very important. Um, and the reason I bring up this was there was a ride manager, Don Hilson was his name, and when I was thinking about what became Mater's, I asked the question to Don, um, did, did he know the old ride called the Whip? Yeah. And it's an old ride, basically on the East Coast. You're in a freewheeling wagon towed by a, a cable, steel cable, and you go around in a, basically a lozenge-safe track. Right. Uh, but I asked the question, you, that never crosses the center line. It always swings out. No matter what happens, you always swing away due to centrifugal force. And so I asked the question, could you go the other direction? Could you cross the center line? Mm -hmm. Don thought about that, and came, he and I schemed, and our scheme led to what became Mater's, which then got the patent, right. which became other a ride system that Disney's done four different times now. Yeah, Baymax, and uh, there's the Toy Story Land one. and Yeah, it's, it's in Shanghai, it's yeah. Woody Roundup, it's Baymax yeah. in Tokyo, it's in Florida. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, in each, each case, it was completely different theming, but the same ride system. Same basic. Yeah, right. it's it's now a classic, like the teacups, you know, it's a, it's, it's a classic. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> It was fun. And again, it, it's something where I have these weird ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and unfortunately, people fall into my spell, and I, you know, they join my crazy train, and we go and make these things real. That's great. You know, I don't think enough love is given to those those C ticket type, you know, C and D ticket type attractions either. Everyone's always like, oh, you know, what's the next big E ticket? Like, but to have a well-rounded park and a well-rounded family experience, you really need those. I, I think that's something that's lacking at Galaxy's Edge. <clears throat> you know, it's got yeah. two great e-tickets, and there's no, you know, there's there's no real. Just imagine the thing you could do is make a droid spinner or something like that. It, it wouldn't be something for the little ones, you know. Yeah, I, I think that there's a tendency to do marketing, to focus on marketing. And mm. the, the flat rides don't give a lot of love. They do give a lot of kinetic to a land. Yeah. They are cheaper to build. Yeah. And so when you do the formula of cost per guest carried, they are definitely cheaper. Yeah. They don't carry as many guests per hour as, let's say, a major e-ticket. Mm-hmm. But again, using the guest, cost per guest carried formula, they are actually much better buy for your dollar yeah. and again they do provide kinetics but yeah. they are difficult to market no one's going to say hey come to disneyland to ride a teacup they're not sexy or, yeah. you know hey come to disneyland to ride galaxy's edge or rise of resistance people will do that but they won't right. you know they won't come to ride the teacup so mm-hmm. intent to visit is a major contributing factor to what gets greenlit or not if something will cause you and your family to go to Anaheim, then it's more likely to be greenlit than something that doesn't. Mm-hmm. So uh, of all the things that you've worked on or had a hand in, what, what sticks in your mind the most? Oh, usually the last thing I worked on. Honestly, yeah. it's, it's the last thing because that's the freshest. But, you know, every everything, everything looks good to me when I look in the my photo books yeah uh, i spent several months going through my photo albums and i thought oh i'll have a few and i ended up i had over fifty-eight thousand photos <laughs> you know it's an embarrassing ridiculous amount but right um every project has been great uh and the memories basically are of my colleagues who i worked with you know the teams that are located really worldwide um, in Shanghai, Hong Kong, Paris, Orlando, Anaheim. Yeah. Those are the things I mem- remember and have fondest memories of. Strangely mm-hmm. enough, not the rides themselves. Mm-hmm. Because when I do something, it's always better in memory than how it's operated. You know, Because <laughs> you hand it off. Once you're done at Imagineer, you hand it off to yeah. operations. Mm-hmm. And you're yeah, done. you do. You do. You have to. You have to let go. Yeah. You really do have to let go when you do something, and especially the first year. As a rule, I don't go to a ride that I've done after the first year. I'll I'll go a couple of times, but after that, I don't because it mm. it evolves, it changes. Uh, WDI is a a uh, uh, company that creates rides for parks, but the parks mm. operate as businesses, right. and if something doesn't work. They'll change it. They'll alter it. That's their right, and so I have to, I respect their right to change things. So I have these memories of how great something's going to be, and when it opens, it usually is that great. But afterward, yeah. not so much. It, it drifts, and also I'm on to the next new thing, which 
you know, captures my imagination. Right. All of my energy goes to that. That's what you're excited about then. Yeah, there's that, that, that great quote, uh, no plan ever uh, survives first contact with the enemy. No, no, it doesn't. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. I had my, in Florida, when we were doing our first soft openings of Rock and Roller Coaster, I was chatting with some colleagues and I had my back to the gate when the operator dropped the rope and I felt this hot wind on my back. And that's a hot wind of just about a thousand human bodies rushed into a confined space. Uh-huh. And I felt this and it was like opening your oven door. I can't really compare it to anything else, huh. but it's just human people moving in. And I thought at that moment, oh, I've handed this over. This doesn't belong to me any longer. Right. And the guests write letters and comment. And Marty Scalar was great at this when, you know, he was alive and working at Disney. He would mm-hmm. get letters from guests and he'd make copies and send them to his designers. Yeah. And I got a lot of them. And he'd send me letters from guests mm-hmm. and say, answer this person or ignore this person. They're full of rubbish. <laughs> I thought you should know. Uh-huh. And and so, you know, we would be very cognizant of what people thought. Yeah. Um, but we'd focus on our story and deliver on time and on budget. And yeah. hopefully everyone loved what we did as much as we did. All right. Well, this hour is, has been zipping by. I only have a couple more questions for you. Uh, favorite project ever built? Oh. Can I, say, can I start by saying the, the my least favorite project? That was my next question. Yes, what's your least favorite project? <laughs> okay, this is something I feel guilty, and I carry I, my least favorite project because I carry this guilt as a weight on my back to this day. Mm. Um, I was responsible back in 2000 for 100 years of magic, mm. and that was a big celebration, celebrating Walt Disney's 100th anniversary, or 100th right. birthday. Right. And so as part of that, we did a big celebration exhibit for Walt. And as a result, I was responsible for going to the studio in Burbank and taking his working office apart and shipping it to Orlando. Wow. And so I moved Walt's desk from Burbank, which was sacred ground. Right. Because again, remember, this was his office that had not been opened. It was cleaned and, but no one had occupied it. It was Walt's office. You don't touch Walt's office. Right. And here I came in, taking his office apart, tagging things, shipping mm. to Orlando, and it's was in Orlando suddenly. So I feel most guilty about that. Yeah, it's back in Burbank now. Don't don't isn't hasn't Walt's office been restored in Burbank? I I, I can't confirm that. I can neither confirm. You can neither confirm nor deny. I I saw it on Disney Plus. It's there. Well, there were always two offices. There was the public yeah. office and the private right. office. And the private office. So, you know, we, we moved his, office, his personal office. Mm. And, and at the time, they were talking about, well, they'll only be down here temporarily. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, sometimes at Disney, things that are temporary are not so temporary. Right. So I carry that, that guilt on my, my back. Yeah. Uh, most favorite project, I think, probably was Shanghai Disneyland. Mm. Because it was the hardest project. Right. As a company, we went into a country that really didn't have the appetite for Disney. They know that they wanted it. They know that they wanted something for their leisure, to expand their leisure business. Mm -hmm. And they knew Disney was a brand that was well-respected. 
but they really didn't know us. When Disney went into Tokyo, um, because of various reasons, such as World War II, yeah. where you know, the, the West occupied the Japanese country for a while, Yeah, a, a lot of Western culture was imported, but not so much in China. So that was difficult. And to their credit, my Chinese colleagues really rose to the challenge. And when I worked over there, I worked as being responsible for Toy Store Hotel and Toy Store Land. And I was the only creative person there from the West. Everyone else was uh, a Chinese local hire. Mm. And that was something I insisted on. Yeah. Because my insisting, I insisted that just because somebody doesn't know something doesn't mean they can't be taught something. Right. And in China, I found incredibly gifted and talented and passionate individuals who rose to the challenge and worked and worked and worked ridiculously long hours to deliver an incredible product to the mm. market. And interestingly enough, that project has been, I would say, successful from day one. Yeah. Looking back, when Hong Kong opened, it got mixed reviews. When Paris opened, it had mixed reviews. But Shanghai never had a mixed review. It was always positive from day one. So yeah. that one I'm very proud of. I'd love to go there someday. You Check it out. I would. We'll hang up. We'll hang up and you go. You go I, I'll, I'll go make some reservations. Calls. <laughs> okay. This one. This one's a little trickier um, because you might not be able to say, but if you can, what's your favorite project that you worked on? Because you said you know one in ten that was not built. Oh, let me see. That's a hard one. I'm not saying it's hard because I'm being evasive. I would say probably the the project that didn't get built that I wish had been would be the new Tomorrowland project in Anaheim. Mm. And it was yeah, we the, all regret that one not being built. Yeah, it was the <laughs> 90s. And I think it would have been spectacular had it been built. Mm -hmm. um, it just wasn't built. There wasn't, you know, for various reasons. Some of them were financial appetite. Yeah. Um, and I think that was probably the most, the greatest driver of it. Uh, but it would have, I think it would have addressed the problem in Anaheim of how do you build a Tomorrowland that doesn't look like Yesterland? Yeah. How do you future proof that? Yeah. yeah, and that's always been a problem. I mean, if you look back, Discoveryland in Paris is 29 years old. Yeah. But I would say that it's not future-proof. It was future-proof because yeah. it's not based on the future of tomorrow. It's based on the future of the past. It was a Jules Verne future, mm -hmm. which is, you may agree or disagree with that view, but yeah. you can't dispute it. It was a legitimate view of what the mm -hmm. future would be and how you would achieve the future. Right. If you had power, it was steam power. Right. Okay. Jules was wrong. Yeah. He wasn't wrong forever. He was just wrong yeah. for now. Uh, but it was, as a result, it was future-proofed and it's still legitimate. Uh, whereas Anaheim is not so much. And Florida, definitely not. Yeah. Well, I, personally, I think they should, le they should lean into the nostalgia for mid-century modern and, and make Tomorrowland that vision of the future that is now didn't yeah. happen you know yeah. that that I, I, 1960s vision yeah 
Yeah, I had a close I had a close encounter with that that view. I I pitched Tony Baxter uh, rather than tear out the original Tomorrowland, lean heavily into it. They wasn't mm-hmm. the budget in '55, yeah. but there was a lot of the streamlined modern boogie version. Right. And I said, well, why don't we lean all the way there? And rather than try to make it something else, make it the 1955 Googie version of tomorrow. Because again, you know, right. that's not, that's legitimate. It, and jetpacks, flying cars, all that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's legitimate. Again, it's interesting to talk about that because originally Utopia in 1955, the story conceit and the joy of Utopia wasn't that you could drive a car. If you could drive a car without on a road without stoplights. The freeways. The yes. freeway. God, for goodness sakes, there's a freeway. Because <laughs> in Anaheim, my parents, my father would drive the car, and we didn't encounter a stoplight until we got down to Anaheim, because that was right. the end of the freeway. That was the end of the freeway. And for, for a child or anyone to drive a car on a freeway without a stoplight, that was the future. Now it's evolved into, oh, it's a kiddie ride where you get to drive and be empowered before you get your driver's license. Right. But that's not what it was in 1955. Right. It was the freeway of tomorrow. That was that was the whole idea. A road without stops. Stop. A road without stopping. <laughs> so so what's next for Jim Scholl? Uh, Jim Scholl is busy on social media and he's working for other companies. I when I left Imagineering, I you know we. I went back to my home studio and cleaned it out and immediately the next week started getting solicitations from other companies and some of the work has intrigued me and I've accepted them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm continuing to work you know, on co- with companies both in the United States and now in China. Wow. So China is, is still a growth market and yeah. they have some really fascinating projects, one of which I'm engaged with, but I can't talk about. Right. Um, not been publicly re- released. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm working on that, and then I'm across the social media platforms. I'm on Twitter at Jim Scholl. Anyone yes. wants to reach out? Yeah. If you want to see those, uh, some of those fifty-eight thousand photos, yeah. uh, uh, Jim Scholl is a great follow on Twitter at Jim Scholl. Uh, that's how I became aware and met Mr. Shaw, and uh, happy I did. It's a, it's a definitely worth checking out. You got any questions for me before we go? Yeah, when are you going to post another video? I'm, I'm anx- Once anxious. a week. <laughs> yeah, I do but one I a week. Get, I want to get into the, when are you going to build a glory hole in, in Puckle Mountain? <laughs> That's going to be several videos. That's that's going to, because I mean, there's going to be animation, there's going to be lighting, there's going to be rock work. It's all, it's, yeah. And it's all working in close confines, too. So um, I did I did allow myself some access from the back, but it's going to be interesting. I got I got bridges to build in there. And yeah, so it's it'll be several, several videos. But yes, it's all coming. One a week. That's all I can manage, you know. <laughs> I'm not one of these guys that just goes to the theme park and turns the camera on and does a video. I got to actually build something. <laughs> and then you've got to edit it and put recording and narrate it, narrated yeah, graphics and all that. You some jaunty music in there, yeah, make it an entire themed experience. You know, well, that's, that's great. You know, it's I if I had a, a garage and a wife who wouldn't slit my throat, I would. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'd be building a you know a, a layout here in my palatial estate. Start in, small. That's my advice know, I, to anybody. I, start small. I know, I know, but I've got big ideas. I That's, know, but you know, start small, finish that, and then you can always add on. That's what I started. Mine was uh, three by six feet when I started. It's gotten much bigger. No, the seduction. It's always yes. a, a seduction. And there's always another idea. You know, there's always another thing. That, oh, what if I, what if I did this? You know, what if I added that? But, well, I, I noticed that recently you bought a, a laser. I have a laser. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's a, that's a thing, game changer. The things yeah. you can do with a laser. Oh man, I'm telling you, it's. Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it, it brings the modeling to a whole nother level. You can really do some some neat stuff, as you know. Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, you're, I sent you some not coffee sticks. I sent you some wood wood stewers. Wood, yeah. I, I got to figure out what to do with those. I don't know. I just wanted. To, I saw them. Uh, we have a local paint store. We don't go. I don't go to Home Depot or any snazzy tar place like that. I go to good old. New Hall Paint and Lumber, which is good for you. years old, and one old cranky guy runs it. But he makes his own paint stir sticks. And when I saw them, I thought, oh, Dave needs some of them. Too. <laughs> but, well, I appreciate it. I'll build, I'll build a dim, Jim Shull Memorial Trestle Bridge out of them. Okay. No, no, probably make the Jim Shull Outhouse. <laughs> Maybe something like that, too. Well, Jim, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. That that time just flew by. I mean, uh, we could probably spend three more hours doing this, but uh, no I'm going to let you go for today. And uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks again, and I'll uh, I'll be seeing you on the Twitters. Okay. Well, thank you, Dave. This is wonderful. We could I definitely would love to do this again, and it was great talking to you today. Great. We just, yeah, we just scratched the surface. All right. And that is our show for this time, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. And many thanks to our guest, the amazing and talented Jim Shull. Remember, you can find Jim on Twitter with the handle at Jim Shull. That's at J-I-M-S-H-U-L-L. I hope you can join us for Episode 8 that will be airing in August, when we'll be talking about more Disney, modeling, and trains. Until then, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a single episode. And you can do that via direct RSS feed at thundermesa.studio slash podcasts, or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are streaming. If you'd like to help get Thunder Mesa Studios podcasts and videos on the air, please consider joining our Patreon campaign. Our patrons get early access and exclusive content for as little as $3 a month. You can find out more at patreon.com slash thundermesa. And now, folks, I've got me a train to catch. Keep moving forward, amigos. Adios for now.